Welcome to the Treble Podcast. I'm your host, David Gertler. Treble is a business networking platform that helps professionals manage, grow, and most importantly, leverage their network for new business and career opportunities. Our podcast highlights business professionals and their stories. Join us to hear how some amazing people navigated or created their own career path and share business insights with us. Hi, everybody. I've got a really extra special guest today, and he doesn't know I'm about to say this uh, about uh, him. But before we start, it's not every day that you get to meet somebody or talk to somebody who is an inspiration. And Brett probably doesn't know, but many, many years ago, uh, I, I knew Brett as a little kid. He was a couple of years older than me. Um, and I kind of lost touch with him. You know, he was older and, and went to college before me and et cetera. But I stumbled upon a book that he had written that showed how he was able to manage classes in Stanford with starting and launching a, a new business venture um, with, you know, his life schedule and balance and extracurriculars. And I remember it was a cartoon that's like Friday afternoon, Friday evenings, chasing girls kind of thing, right? I was waiting for that. <laughs> and, and so, you know, it's like, and I still remember this, this is like this 40 years ago, 30 something years ago, right? Yeah. And I remember thinking, wow, this guy can do everything because he has a plan. And that just so inspired me. And then in my career, I ended up going into business. I didn't have not nearly the successes that you have, Brett. But nevertheless, in the back of my mind, I still remember how inspiring you were for me. And I really appreciate you taking some time to be with us. So please, everybody, welcome my incredible guest, Brett Kingstone. Honored to be with you, David. All right. So I'm going to and start you've with- you very well for yourself, by the way. I, uh, um, I've, I've got, you can fill me in on the college girl chasing later, okay? Yeah, we'll talk about that. Uh, um, so I want to start with current. I know um, you're kind of retired and you spend a lot of your time and effort helping others and good causes like the Navy SEAL Foundation. You want to talk a little bit about that? What are you up to these days and what got you started with that? Well, uh, um, I'm co-chairman of the Navy SEAL Legacy Foundation 9-11 event um, uh, and a major contributor. And uh, with September 11th, every September 11th, they have a uh, event uh, to memorialize uh, the people we've lost in September 11th and all the Navy SEALs who were brought into action uh, since that period of time. And it's a substantial number, over 100 um, of our country's greatest special operation warriors died in the line of duty. They left behind families and children. And the money we raise there is to support to make sure that they know that not only will the Navy SEALs who died will never be left behind, but their families will never be left behind. Um, as you know, I started a few high-tech companies while I was in college. <laughs> I blew up the dorm room <laughs> in one of my experiments. Um, sold them, took a couple of public on NASDAQ, and then built up a real estate company, which is still operating. But um, I found a few of my staff members who actually run the company better than I do. So I made one of them, Amon Dillon, COO, Chief Operating Officer. And quite frankly, she's doing a better job running the company than I am. So I get to go rock climbing, skydiving, mountain biking, and <laughs> traveling around the world. And uh, she runs the company, and uh, it's it's been never been more profitable. So she's done a great job. So I guess I'm a bum now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, From what you used to know me, I used to be very ambitious now. <laughs> Not so much. Oh, uh, you know, you're getting, you're slowing down a little, right. But nevertheless, <laughs> I mean, you won, you won an award last year um, from the, the Navy SEAL Legacy Foundation, uh, a Patriot Award. Tell me a little bit about that. 
So the, the Navy SEAL Legacy Foundation Patriot Award is the highest award they, they uh, provide to um, people involved with the organization, whether it's people who spend a lot of their time or a lot of their money or both. In my case, I think it's uh, both. Uh, obviously, I don't look at it as a donation. I look at it as a payment, uh, long overdue payment on a debt that I owe the veterans of this country for keeping this United States free, um, giving us the opportunities of free enterprise to be able to have the freedom to start and operate our businesses, which wasn't true from where my family came from. My family immigrated from Russia. I believe your family came from Eastern Europe as well as did most of the families in our neighborhood, in our community. And I remember my grandfather bouncing me on his knee, uh, telling me, thank God you live in America and telling me about what it was like in Russia. Um, and we didn't have the opportunities there and didn't have the opportunities even for freedom of religion. Um, they were burning down Jewish villages in, uh, in Russia and pogroms. Um, so I look at it as paying back a debt that I long overdue for the veterans of this country that have basically risked life and limb to make sure that we had this great opportunity to live in this amazing country, the United States of America. That's awesome. You know, Brett, thank you so much for what you've been doing for um, our service members. It's just inspiring, you know, for somebody, and we'll go through your, your, your career and your path, but for somebody who can easily just be a bum uh, and rock climb and enjoy life, you know, you, you spend a fair amount of your time and effort helping yeah. others and recognizing, rewarding those who've made tremendous sacrifices um, to our country to keep us free. So thank you for doing that on behalf of everybody. Honored to do it. Honored to do it. Hey, so let's let's go back. Um, if you want to pick uh, high school, I know you where you went to high school or college. Um, yeah. Tell me what your vision was. You know, early on, did you have a, a sense of what you wanted to do when you were a kid in a high school, college area? It, it became pretty clear very early in life that I didn't want to work for anyone else. I just wanted to work for myself. Mm -hmm. And at first, I don't think it was so much the draw of making money as it was the fact that I was an independent spirit and liked to do things my own way. And even as most teenagers have heads been bigger than their, <laughs> their, their minds or capabilities, uh, egos at least, um, I thought I could do it better than anyone else. So why should I work for someone else? I should start my own business. So, you know, one of the things I remember doing while I was in uh, in middle school, you know, in junior high, as I had the largest single paper route in the state of New York and got awarded to go see the Cowboys with, um, uh, you know, uh, John Wayne at Radio City Music Hall, the, the, the basically the premiere of the Cowboys at Radio City Music Hall. And I had lunch with John Wayne. There's a picture of me. He was so tall, so much taller than me. And as you know, I never was a tall guy to begin with. Um, I had to hold my cowboy hat when I looked up at him to keep it from falling off. But that was kind of like, you know, I just decided when I went in that contest, I was going to be number one and I was going to sell the most newspapers door to door, which I did for the New York Daily News. Um, but then I had ideas for businesses. I, I started them. You know, I had my own snow shoveling service. I'd walk up and down the neighborhood streets and the businessmen would come out in their suits and ties and lift their garage and realize that the, they're snowed in and they're not going to get sweaty with their suits. So we would just shovel the snow and, you know, I'd make $50 a, 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 a you know, for depending on how big the driveway was. And if I do th two or three of them, I mean, back in those days, $150, $200 in the morning before you go to school is serious money back yeah. in the 70s. So, uh, and then graduated obviously to starting high-tech companies at Stanford, sold uh, two of them. I had a publishing company called 
the Doopy Press, which I sold to Ballantine Books, a division of Random House. The uh, cartoonist that I basically published, Gil Morales, is our Stanford Daily Cartoonist. The book later became known as Wake Me When the Semester is Over and did very well. And uh, then, of course, wrote a couple of books on starting your own business, a book called The Dynamos that in the early days I was enter- able to interview Scott McNeely, the founder of Sun Microsystems, who was from Stanford. Um, obviously, he was able to interview Wozniak and Jobs, who started Apple Computer. Michael Dell, when he was still working out of his University of Texas at Austin Garage. At the time, his company was called PCs Limited. It wasn't Dell Computer. So it was great during the 80s to actually be able to meet the guys who started the tech revolution and um, write about them in in one of my books. And then obviously I then started Supervision, which went public on the NASDAQ stock exchange. We sold a major major, uh, share investment to Cooper Industries on the New York Stock Exchange, which is now Eaton. It's a public visit company on the New York Stock Exchange. And then ultimately, uh, billionaire uh, Robert LaPenta, who owns L3 Communications, uh, bought our company uh, through revolutionary lighting technologies, which he owns and controls. It was a conglomerate that owned many LED and uh, fiber optic lighting companies. So that was 2006. And we all know what happened in 2007. Kaboom, yep. the market crashed. Yep. Thank God I got paid cash instead of stock because mm-hmm. my stock today would be worth a tenth of what they paid me in cash. I said, I'm not running the company. I don't want stock. Pay me cash. Right. I'll be on my way. So to make a long story short, uh, 2007 was a big crash, not in just the market, but in real estate. And the foreclosures, particularly in Florida, were outrageous, both commercial and residential. So I heard Warren Buffett, who's one of my mentors, you know, I just worship the guy, get on national television and said about this big crisis, he said, this is both the single biggest crisis and the single biggest opportunity he has witnessed in his lifetime. So I told my son, Max, who's about 13 or 14 then, he says, this guy's a lot smarter than me. I'm going to call every bank right now, and I'm going to get on their foreclosure and REO lists. And I was buying between three and four buildings a month from the banks in foreclosure at between eight to 12 cents on the dollar of the previous year's appraisal. And in the last three years, I sold probably 75% of my holdings at seven to nine times what I paid for them. Wow. And again, Warren Buffett was right. <laughs> so well, yeah, the quote I remember is um, be greedy when people are fearful, right? And fearful when people- Well, yeah, I think it was, you know, uh, another Wall Street tycoon, Bernard Baruch said, uh, buy when the blood's running in the streets and sell on, you, sell on euphoria. Yeah. And clearly markets tend to overreact because- at the end of the day, it's really not computers that are generating buy and sell orders. It's people calling to their brokers or you know, typing in on the internet. And you're dealing with people's emotions. And people's emotions always exaggerate the problem and the opportunity. So the swings are in both directions. And I could tell you in the last 10 years, I didn't pick the top and bottom of the market, but I clearly understood that 2006 was the peak and 2007 was a crash. I mean, you didn't have to be a rocket science to figure it out. The difference is many people panic when it crashes and they do the, exactly the opposite. They sell their stocks rather than hold them for the long term or maybe buy more and average price average down. Mm-hmm. In my case, what I did is I went and bought real estate like some of the very smart Wall Street investors were buying stocks in 2007. Mm-hmm. And um, I was able to lease them up because I bought them at such low prices I can offer literally 25 to 50% discounts on rent for the first year. Then the next year we'd adjust it 
to market rent, and then we use the CPI or inflation rate as an increase. I'd fill all my buildings within six months, even in a bad economy, because if you buy the building at a 90% discount, you sure as heck can afford to offer a 20 to 50% rate reduction to lease up your building. And then when all my buildings were filled, these real estate investment trusts in New York and London and Miami were all buying these buildings, these industrial properties at a five cap, at a cap rate. So it didn't matter what you paid for the building. They were buying it based on the revenues those buildings generated the total, you know, the total net income based on those leases, and they were phenomenal. Wow. Yeah. Hey, I, I want to take you back. Um, there's there's a story I've always wanted to know this whether it's true or not. Right, you were in an entrepreneurship class in Stanford, and I think it was either you know start your own business or write up a paper, but you started like a mattress, like selling um, mattresses, and then yeah. you know not only did you get an A in the class, but you actually made money. And did you keep that? Is that true? And did you keep that business running for a while? And that made like, and I remember hearing that story decades ago. And like, it's one thing to write a paper, you know, when, oh, here's a great idea for a business, etc. It's another thing to actually do it and then do it profitably. I mean, how how much truth is do I know of that story? No, you're you're 100% right. And let me give a shout out to my business professor, Professor Paul Griffin, who wrote the introduction to that book and also allowed me to do that as a final grade because I would have failed the class <laughs> because I was already running my businesses <laughs> had I not been able to do a final project as opposed so to- school just got in your way, right? Yes. Yeah. So Professor Paul Griffin of the Stanford Business School, thank you very much. Um, yes, uh, you know, uh, it was a great learning experience. Um, that was a student entrepreneur's guide, which Milton Friedman, a Nobel Prize winner in economics, wrote the introduction. It's on the cover of the book. Um, he was at the Hoover Institution at the time. Professor Griffin actually wrote the formal introduction inside the book. So I guess Milton Friedman wrote the endorsement quote on the cover. Uh, Professor Griffin wrote the introduction. And really, um, it was just a great opportunity to crystallize everything I learned by starting a part-time business at Stanford, which later became a full-time business, which I later took public on the NASDAQ Stock Exchange. And that was an experience as well. Every company I've had since then has been privately owned by myself. And as in all my real estate transactions, we would just do cash, cash mm-hmm. deals. Right, right. So you've done so many things um, in so many businesses. How do you know what's next? You just, like you, you mentioned in the, in the, the economic, um, the real estate crash just presented as a great opportunity for you. You recognized, right. you took action, but earlier in your career, how did you know, Hey, it's time to sell this. It's time to move on to that. What's what happens inside your brain to say, it's time to do something different. I don't think it's as much your brain as it is your instincts. And I think the instincts is your sum total of all your knowledge, your experiences from real life combined. Um, I think, very often you look within your heart and your soul and say, what is I want to do in life? Um, and it was at a point where the company was getting very big. We had hundreds of employees. We had distributors in 72 countries around the world. I was flying um, to Dubai to, uh, you know, in one week I went from London to Dubai to, to uh, Abu Dhabi and then to uh, Singapore. And I remember I used to call in the morning and, and, and call down to the operator, hotel operator in the morning to ask, where did I wake up? What country was I in? I kind of forgot. 
very often, you know, our schedule packed so tight that I would do overnight flights. So I'd literally sleep on the plane. So I'd arrive in the morning and have the whole full day of meetings, then sleep on the plane again, arrive in the morning, have the next full day of meetings and hop on the plane. So I remember there was one week that out of probably six nights, I spent two nights in a hotel. Okay. <laughs> and then I would call and say, where am I in the morning? So, um, you know, my kids were still fairly young then. I wanted to spend more time with them. We made it, was Cooper Industries offered to buy a major uh, uh, share interest in the company. Um, uh, I knew that I had an exit strategy too, whether I was going to sell the company to Cooper or maybe another large company that we had been talking to. And I felt that at that point, my freedom and the time spent with the family was worth more than money. A lot of people said, my God, Brett, that was brilliant. You sold it in December of 2006. It was perfect timing. And then the market crashed. And then you were able to take all that cash you made in selling the company and, you know, buy, buy all these buildings at 90% discounts. And I said, I'm, you know, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but it wasn't brilliant. You know, I didn't have a crystal ball. It wasn't brilliant to my part. It was just time in my life that I felt I needed to um, be able to have more time and be able to spend time with the family. And as a result, yes, it was a tremendous windfall, tremendous. Um, the real estate was basically an opportunity I saw and I jumped at. okay? Um, I actually moved my law firm to the second floor of my office building in Orlando, Henderson Sachs Law Firm, so I can walk down the hall and go to the closing age, you know, title agency, which they own, Florida Titlesmith, and also Henderson Sachs, who did all the legal work because I was buying so many buildings I didn't have time to get in my car and drive him across town. <laughs> I would just walk down the hallway. Um, as it relates to the other opportunities I've been in, it's, it's really at the point where, and I, the, the main advice, you, knew, you saw this in the book, do what you love. Because if you really love doing something, you're going to be good at it. If you only do it for money, sooner or later, the trials and tribulations of building a business is going to weigh on you and you're going to give up. But if there's, do your passion what you really love in life, because that's something you will excel at and something that will keep you motivated through a lot of the challenges of starting a business. I remember the first two years of supervision, I didn't pay myself a salary. And for many years, even after we went public, I was like Steve Jobs and Wayne Huizinga. I paid myself a dollar a year and I had my return was my shareholder interest in the company. And then later on, of course, we started drawing salaries. But not many people would be willing to do that unless they had this driving passion and for their belief in the opportunity. And the other thing I think is important to mention is sometimes you have to stand up and realize when the opportunity is just not going to work. And unfortunately, I've seen many people, especially fellow graduates from Stanford, who today really don't have much to show in life, not because they're not smart. In fact, they graduated far ahead of me in the class, in terms of top of the class, in terms of grades, but because they were not willing to be honest with themselves about business opportunities that they should have realized had no future. And as a result, they spent 10 years trying to make something happen, in some cases more than that, and ultimately failing, as opposed to realizing, okay, it's very clear, it's been two years, we're not getting anywhere, and I don't see we're going to get anywhere. Let's pivot, let's find another opportunity. All right, so fail fast. Yeah, failure is not bad, but you need to realize it as soon as possible and be honest with yourself and move on to the next opportunity. Have you had any failures? Yes. I don't know anybody who's successful who have. Mm -hmm. um, 
I had one company I started earlier. I write about it in my book, The Real War Against America, which talks about the Chinese industrial espionage we had. It was called Fiberview. Mm -hmm. um, in that case, my board had a nickname for me. They used to call me Don Quixote because they said, you like tilted windmills. You think you could just go ahead and... I decided to have a patent battle with Mitsubishi Corporation. Wow. <laughs> like my little business operating two steps out of a garage and I've decided to go full force tilting my, my lance at that giant windmill Mitsubishi. Obviously I had my head caved in. And you know, looking back on it, at the time, I thought it was the worst disaster and failure I ever had in my life. I look back on it, it was good fortune because looking back on that technology and it was for, to make a thin screen panel TV or computer display using fiber optics as individual pixels as opposed to LCD. Well, LCDs and LEDs became so inexpensive that basically my technology became the buggy whip, you know, and totally, totally out innovated by other technologies. So I kind of feel like the invisible hand or the hand of God, like realized I was a stubborn guy and he had to make sure I had a quick, miserable failure to get out of that. And then I, you know, I sulked for about a month or two and sailed my boat around the Caribbean a little bit. And the only talent I really pro proved to have as a captain is finding every sandbar on the way to port. <laughs> I actually got stuck in Hemingway Harbor in Havana, Cuba. That was another story I'll tell you later. But um, when I came back, I decided to start Supervision, which ultimately became one of the biggest, most successful companies that I operated and basically gave me the fortune I needed to really become a a major player in the uh, the Florida real estate market, but industrial and commercial real estate market. Yeah. So, given what you're doing now, what would it take for you to start something brand new? Are you completely out of the game, or like you know something came along? What what not what industry? Because I don't think that's you know, your driver. I decided I decided to have this interview on the deck because my wife and baby. You know, I have a one and a half year old. I'm on my second. Uh, uh, time around because I love kids. Uh, if she heard me start saying I'm going to start another company, she's a veterinary surgeon. I'd wake up with an IV in my arm and I'd definitely be missing a limb or something more important. <laughs> so, you know, I'd look under the covers, make sure we're all there. But because <laughs> uh, she moved out to Colorado to enjoy our ranch here and what have you. But I don't really know. I mean, I think, you know, when I was 50 years old, I went rock climbing and I was up on a you know, 14 or, you know, almost 14,000 feet up, uh, sat on top of the mountain, you kind of had that, you know, the, that, that kind of, uh, you know, epiphany you get when obviously you're a little bit oxygen deprived because the air is pretty thin up there and you think you're having a vision, you know, but maybe it's just oxygen deprivation. And I realized that all my trusts and my wills were all wrong, that I was going to give away all my money uh, after I died. And I figured, what good is that? I don't get to see the smiles on the faces of all the people I'm going to benefit. And I think at that point, I pretty much decided I was going to sell supervision and focus on, you know, real estate investments, because I owned a number of buildings, including the buildings that supervision grew out of, I paid with my own cash and kept and then we signed leases for new ones. And then I would rent them to my uh, subcontractors and my my clients who, you know, needed buildings. So um, I think at this point in life, it, it's time for me to focus on giving my money away as opposed to earning more. Um, you know, one thing was said to me, and it was a guy on an airplane told me that he was sitting, we had, you know, we were, you know, we're, we were, you know, got our plates eating and he looked at me and a very successful guy and said, you know, no matter how much money you make, you can only eat really 
one or two hamburgers at one time, uh, an extra million dollars in your account or an extra billion in his case, um, you know, you're not going to develop the ability to eat three or four steaks at one sitting. Maybe some people can, but the average person, no. And, you know, you can't put your behind in one first class seat or private jet more than more than once. You can only go on one trip at a time. So at the point, it becomes a law of diminishing returns. I get more satisfaction. I get more happiness being able to do things for people that I think are worthy. Mm -hmm. And again, as you know, I donated 12 uh, recreation facilities and readiness complex to the Israeli Defense Forces, the Kafir Marine Corps base. I donated their recreation center, the uh, ATOM battalion, which is an all-women combat battalion, which is on, I can't say specifically where it is, but it's on the border of Israel and Egypt. Um, we donated their recreation facility and the readiness complex for the um, Scorpion uh, Squadron, which is a very famous Israeli Air Force squadron that accomplished many very important missions that you probably heard in the news, but they were not identified for, including nuclear reactors that were in unfriendly countries. So, wow. at any rate, that you know, Give Kids the World, Wounded Warrior Foundation, um, uh, obviously Navy Seal Legacy Foundation, and uh, now I'm backing about uh, 25 different congressmen running. Uh, who are Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, Special Forces guys were running to take uh, Democratic seats, uh, turning them Republicans so we can get back to some sanity in uh, our management and of our country and not have the 40th highest inflation rate in 40 years and absolutely no oil energy policy that is destroying our country. It's absolutely destroying us. Um, and then also backing Herschel Walker for the US Senate. I met him at Mar-a-Lago. Um, at a, a great fundraiser. He's a spectacular guy and several other senators that hopefully will return this country to some sanity as it relates to business and our economy. Absolutely. Brett, I want to say thank you so much. I, I can go on for hours. You know, like I said, you, you, you have always been an inspiration. Um, there were three things that just struck me uh, through, through okay. your description and all that. Um, and it's kind of funny. They have a theme, which is emotions, right? You had mentioned, you know, people's, people will often their emotions will often over predict, right? So right. when they think it's scary, they do more, you know, they sell more or they buy more. Overreact, overreact. overreact right? Yeah. Um, you had mentioned when we talked about entrepreneurship at one point, instincts, uh, rather than just like what your brain tell you, you said it was more instincts. It's your soul, it's your heart. It's that holistic approach. Um, and then you, you also mentioned uh, for people that are interested in doing startups, find the, the passion, find what you love, right? So, it's funny, I took those three specific notes. It was like, yeah, these are interesting. And they all have this common theme of more of this holistic as opposed to a purely analytical approach or, hey, I looked at the timing of the market, et cetera. Um, and I hope that as well as some of the insights that you shared uh, truly inspire some of our audience today. So with that, I wanna say thank you so much for making time. Thank you so much for giving back and to inspiring the next generation of people. I'll just add more one quick thing that I told my son, because my son had better grades than me and better SAT scores. And I said, Max, being smart is very helpful, but the number one key to success is hard work. And we got to add that to the list. <laughs> I will add that and, to the list. And with that, David, you were always a great kid. You've turned out to be a tremendous uh, you know, uh, entrepreneur yourself. And uh, I want to say that it's an honor to be with you. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Treble Podcast. If you're inspired by this story, want to network more effectively, and unlock new business and career opportunities, download Treble from the App Store today. You'll need to search for 
Treble Network, all one word. We're offering an exclusive deal for our podcast listeners to get a free premium membership with the promo code TREBLEPOD. Again, use the code TREBLEPOD to get a free premium membership on Treble today.